Welcome to the Kingdom Life Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Jamie Dixon. For more great content, visit klcmaine.com. If you guys have your Bibles, go with me to, to Revelation 2.17. We're, we're really just going to be here this morning. And, um, and it's going to tie us back into Beauty for Ashes. I'm going to do this really fast. Um, in, in, these, in these couple first books of the book of Revelation, we have this like vision John has. And he sees the Lord and he sees him as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the last. He sees him holding the keys of life and death in his hands. He sees him glorified for who he is. And Jesus, the one that brought the pure gospel to the church and, and made himself real and known to the body of Christ and gave the authority to the church to preach a pure gospel. And see this like near confrontation, right? This prophetic confrontation where the Lord says, all right, to the churches that I gave this like apostolic governing authority to, I have some things that I need to confront you about. And what it comes down to is a series of things that over the course of time, they begin to allow things other than the purity of the gospel to make its way into the foundation of the church. What, what is the purity of the gospel? The, Jesus is the gospel, and they begin to make it about other things, and they begin to allow other things. And he comes in, and he goes, listen, you guys have done a really great job here in this, in this, and this, but I have this against you that you have fallen away from the things that you learned at first, or I have this against you, you've allowed these other things to come in and be added to the gospel. And he has this specific confrontation in Revelation 2, 17, and, and, he's, and, and at the end of all of these confrontation, he, he says, to him who overcomes. Everyone say Overcome. And in Revelation 2.17, he says, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name will be written, which no one knows except him who receives it. One of the things, one of the reasons why I love to study, like, the words that are used in certain passages is because, how many of you know the Bible wasn't written in English? Yeah. Right? There's a big leap to go from like Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew and to put it into English terminology. And much of the original text was so much more elaborate and so much more cinematic and so much more, um, it, it told such a more, a more significant story that we got to study the word because we miss it when it goes to English. And, and this word overcome specifically is related to a war zone. And it's speaking to this idea, paint this picture of a battlefield, right? And, and it says, to him who overcomes is imagine somebody watching in the valley a massive war and they're watching it. And from up here, I, I don't know who's winning the war, but all of a sudden as the war clamoring comes to an end, somebody picks up the banner of the opposing army and they pick up the banner of their nation and hand in hand, they come walking back up the hill holding both flags. You would say, that's the one that's overcome because they wave the banners of victory. And when he says this to him who overcomes, he's talking about somebody saying, who is it coming up? I, I can't see, I can't make it out. Who is that? Who's waving the banners of victory? And it's you. And you're coming up from the battlefield, the war that's been waged on your life, the battlefield of, of condemnation, the battlefield of the, the plots of the enemy, the story that's been woven through your life to set you up at a disadvantage and to take you out. You went into the war and you came out victorious. But here is the key to this passage, is that it's that 
the him who overcomes, we know this, is that man was not over to win, uh, was not able to win that battle in his own strength. Because there was another battlefield that was laid out, and it was the battlefield at the cross, a bloody and gruesome battlefield in war zone over, over, over uh, sin and the sinful bondage of man. And the father gave his one and only son to lay his life down. And on that battlefield, the cross of Jesus Christ, it says that he paid all the ultimate punishment for all of our sins was heaped upon his life. And in one moment, he received all the punishment. It says that he literally became a curse so that the curse could be lifted from our life. And it says that not only did he go to the war zone, did he die, but it says that for three days, he took all the sin and all the condemnation, every lie and accusation that was ever mounted against you. And he brought it back and he delivered it back to hell. And it says that he picked up the flag of the banner of hell and he picked up the banner of heaven and he went down as a slain lamb. But on the third day, he came back as a roaring lion and he's holding the flags of victory. And imagine us now watching saying, who's coming out of the battlefield and a roaring lion with the flag of hell and heaven in both hands is emerged from the battle scene victorious. And, 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 and he, he emerges victorious. And the Song of Solomon it gives this really interesting picture where they're watching the edge of like this battlefield and they said, who is this coming out of the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? And, and what we have to understand is that when Jesus emerged on the third day out of that tomb, um, overcoming sin, death, and the grave with, with resurrection life, that you came walking out of the tomb with him. And when it says to him who overcomes, it is not talking about your own strength, but it's the same image of who is this leaning upon her beloved? This is about who is walking out of the tomb with Jesus. It's the one who's overcome. The victory is not found in your strength or your ability, but your yieldedness to the accomplishments of what Jesus did on the cross. Victory will never be found in your ability to do anything. We tried that for 2,000 years. It didn't work. Right? But it's only found in Jesus. He's the victorious one. And the overcoming, the victory, the power of victory was found in the yieldness of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, a little cross-reference for us. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, I, I really should mark these things before I preach. Uh, verse 50, it, it says this. Now this I say, brethren, that, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You just can't do it on your own. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. When you're in your own flesh and when you're in your own blood, doing it your own way, you cannot inherit eternity. For behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will be changed. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortality must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, the mortal has put on immortality, then it will be brought to pass the saying that is, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
we're not going to wear this flesh suit all the way to heaven and by our own earning and our own stripes be called victorious. We will put on the robes of victory that he won for every single one of us and we will be called overcomers because we put on the accomplishments of Christ. This makes sense. And he says, he says um, I just want to say, victory is less about strength and it's more about yieldedness. And he says this, to him who is overcome, I will give some of the hidden manna. I want you to get an image of, the, of, of you with the Lord holding the banners of victory coming up from battle victorious. And you come into his glorious kingdom and before, uh, before you is laid the victor's table with the victor's meal. And you're wearing the crown of victory that he's placed upon your head. And you're seated at a table. A meal has been laid before you because your identity is the victorious one. And in this moment, he says, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. This is really important language because you go like, manna, eh, I choose a different meal. Right? But understand this about the manna is that manna is, is biblical language for Christ himself was the bread that came down from heaven. And it was not the bread that leaves you hungry, but it was the bread that would nourish you unto eternal life. And that Jesus' life actually says um, that he became the table of his presence. This is Old Testament terminology. And he says his life became a table and his death became a, a bread. And that we were invited that through his death that we would have eternal fellowship with God. It says in Psalm, it says, it says that, um, that he sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And, and he says, for those who overcome, when you yield into the Lord, I'm going to invite you to the table of my fellowship and I am going to nourish you with myself. You go, well, what does that mean? Well, the thing about manna was that God provided the manna, but the manna, manna was a foundational ingredient that could be pounded into cakes and other food that they could eat together. And you had a little honey, man, that will really spruce up some, you know, that will really, a little oil, a little honey will really take some manna and take it pretty far. It became the main ingredient to multiple meals that could be served. And this is really important because when we feast upon the Lord, it is not only eternal life, but God wants to cover your heart with supernatural peace in the midst of your enemies. And that he actually provides a meal saying, you have access to the, the, to the, to the table of my peace. You have access to a victorious mindset. You have access to wisdom. Come and eat from the table of wisdom. Come and eat from the table of joy. Come and eat from the table of my peace. Come and eat from the table of my healing. He says healing would become the children's bread. And if you ask God for, for bread, he won't give you a stone. That there's healing at this table. There's wisdom at this table. There's joy at this table. Well, the yieldedness through Jesus has given you access to a table where all that you need for life and nourishment and access to eternity is all right in this glorious meal. That his life became food to us. I, I, I know that without Jesus, this, this sense of abandonment on our lives, I mean, you can hear it in the stories that we're hearing. They're like, I came to a place, I, 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 I tried to get it everywhere else, and it couldn't give me joy, it couldn't give me peace, it couldn't give me healing. I mean, I love that statement, Rihanna, that you said, where, where you said, I, I, I furnished my whole life with positivity, but it never brought healing. And we add all these different things, but we don't realize that only healing is found in Jesus. 
And he goes, to him who's overcome, who yields his life into me, and who arises off of the battlefield in victory with me, I will give him some of the hidden manna. The hidden manna is himself. Man, I, I think it's incredible how, how people can go into scenario situations and the, the, the things that are so against us are so big that we easily latch on to anxiety and depression and worry and all these different things, but we don't even realize in the midst of all of this huge stuff that we have a table with wisdom and peace and joy is laid before us. God himself has stretched his own body saying, I've made it all available, come and eat. To him who's overcomes, I'll I'll give some of the hidden manna. And then he says, and I will give them a white stone. Now, this is a fascinating thing. A white stone is actually used in many cultural symbols in in the Old Testament and and in the New Testament as well. And, And this white stone, specifically in two scenarios, was that if you won a competition or if you were the winners of a game, you would be given a trophy and it would be called a white stone. This white stone would declare you strong and powerful, that you were above the rest. You would carry this trophy around with you and go, do you know who I am? And you would show that white stone. I won X, Y, and Z. Do you realize, it it bought you favor and access to things. The other thing about a white stone is that a white stone that if you were, um, if, if there was an accusation brought against your life and you were to come before a judge, he would have two stones in his hands, a black stone in his left hand and a white stone in his right hand. The black stone, if, if you were found guilty, he would take the black stone and he would put it out and you were required to carry it wherever you went. Because that black stone means that the king has deemed you unworthy, unjust, or, or humiliated and you would carry a black stone as like a, as a token of shame. Or if you were found innocent, he would take the white stone and he would put it before you and you would carry a white stone wherever you went. Because if anybody ever brought an accusation against you again, this white stone would literally have a king's signet on it, which means that it's sealed and approved that your identity is innocent from the accusation that's been brought against you. And if anyone comes against you with an accusation of who you are or what you've done, you show them that stone because if they try to argue anything different than what's been declared over your life, show them that they're not arguing with you. They're arguing with the king because it carries his seal of authority. And, 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 and he says, wield this stone. I have given you a white stone that has declared you innocent of every accusation that's ever been brought against you. It says in Romans um, verse 8, verse 1, it says, there is now, there, now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation literally means like a legal process of accusation that's been brought against your life that continually accuses you of guilt and shame that is already determined that you are who I accuse you of being. And that word accusation is an ongoing anthem that says you're not enough, you're unworthy, and you lack, and you're this, and you're that, and it's at war. It's literally a lie that's been woven through your life, and it sounds like mom and dad, or it sounds like brother and sister, or it sounds like friends, or it sounds like past experiences that says you'll never be more than this, or you'll never do this, or you're not this person. And and, in all of these lies, they sound like people, but it's a demonic spirit that's been sown through the course of your life that is at war with the truth, that Jesus would declare over you that you are worthy to receive the, 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 the mercy of God and have a new name and a new nature and a new identity, be filled with life and purpose and, and, and have an assignment given to your life. That you would be called son and daughter. It's at war with that accusation over your life. 
It says, now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because that constant lie of accusation has been sealed by the king's authority in declaration of innocence over your life. And then wherever you go, you can wield it. Those things start coming up again. No, the king has deemed me innocent. To him who overcomes, I will give them a white stone. I will give them authority. I will give them favor. I'll give them access. And I declare innocence over who they are. You are not who you've been accused of being. You have, you've been declared innocent by the king's authority. And then he says this, and he goes, and I will give you a new name that only you know. Now, over the course of Scripture, God gave incredible promises to peoples whose nature and character could not carry it. You look right at Abram and Sarai, the beginning of Scripture. God makes a covenant with mankind, and he goes, Abram, I will cause your seed, your children, to be as vast as the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore. I will make you a father of nations. Sarai, I will make you a mother of nations. And he changes Abram's name to Abraham. Abram meant high father. Abraham meant father of multitudes. And in the giving of the promise to a person who did not have the capacity to actually fulfill God changed his name, and when he changed his name, he changed his nature to have the capacity to do what God's called him to do. And then he looks at Sarah, and he goes, Sarah, Sarai, your name will no longer be Sarai. It will now be Sarah, because Sarai meant my princess, and Sarah meant mother of the nations. And these changing of names had everything to do with God changing the internal nature to contain and do what God has called them to do. You go to the story of Genesis chapter 32 and you see Jacob. Jacob is a fighter. He is a deceiver. He literally from his mother's womb tried to grab his brother's ankle and come out of the womb contending for his, his, uh, the firstborn's blessing. He, he puts hair all over his body and goes before his father who has murky eyes and he goes before him and he tries to be Esau and he steals the, the father's blessing and you, know, you, you, you see all these stories in his, his whole life. You can see God's on his life, but there's this nature to Jacob that's constantly striving and wrestling to do everything in his own power and strength. And he comes this moment where God confronts Jacob's nature and he shows up to him one-on-one and God wrestles with Jacob. And Jacob in this moment of Genesis 32, it says that Jacob latches on and says, who are you and what's your name? And he goes, that's not important right now. And he pops the, the socket out of his hip and he, he gives him a limp, right? And, and, then, and then he says, for today, Jacob, you have wrestled with God and you have lived. Therefore, your name is no longer Jacob, but I'm changing it to Israel, for you are a prince with God. And in this moment, Jacob is not just wrestling with God. He is wrestling with the confrontation of his nature. That Jacob, I've called you to walk out this blessing. I've called you to be a, a father over nations. I've called you, Jacob. But I can't do what I've called you to do with the nature that you continue to walk into. The, act, the name is an accusation over your limitation. But I'm going to change your name and I'm going to change your nature at the exact same time. And in this moment in Revelation, he goes, to him who overcomes, 
I'm going to give you manna to eat. I'm going to give you access to life and joy. I'm going to give you access to hidden wisdom and knowledge and understanding. I'm going to, he says, I'm going to declare you innocent with my own authority that nobody would be able to contend against the truth of what I've declared. And I'm going to change you from the inside out. And I'm going to transform you. You are not who you were before this battle. You've come out victorious. And you will now identify with who you stand in victory, not who you were in defeat. Changes you entirely. And Isaiah, this is where I'm going to land. Isaiah 61, he says, so I'm going to give you beauty for ashes. And I'm going to give you joy for mourning. Are you guys okay with all these historical context things? He said, I'm going to give you beauty for ashes and joy for mourning. we got to understand is that that word beauty is not beauty at all. It has actually, it's not, it's, the word doesn't mean beauty at all. It literally, it means turban. <laughs> I'm going to put a turban on your head. And then, and then it actually, is, that word ashes is not, it's not just like ashes from a fire. It's the ashes of the red heifer. And this is a very, very significant thing because when somebody was on their wedding day, a bridegroom was getting married, he would wear this turban on his head. And wherever he went, everybody knew, dude, happy wedding day. Congratulations. Your life was a celebration. You're wearing the bridegroom's garments. And we'd look upon them and say, high five, bro. Look at him. He's coming down the street, strutting his stuff. Woo, today is a good day. Joy is before you, around you, and all around. Today is a day we're celebrating. He's wearing the turban. Right? But then, but then there was also the ashes. And the ashes were when you were deemed guilty of a sin or a crime. Or something was deemed over your life that was sorrowful or humiliating. You would then walk through the city and they would, they would rub ashes on your, on your face. And when you walked with ashes, everyone would look away in, in scorn, knowing that you were humiliated. And it was a public humiliation. That wherever you go, this mark of sin is on your life. We see it, you're gross. I'm looking away. And, and, and the reality is, is that the majority of us walk our entire lives with the ashes of the red heifer, believing everybody is looking upon the scorn of our life and deemed us gross, humiliated, sorrow connected to my very existence. And he goes, I'm coming to exchange ashes and I'm going to put garments of righteousness on you. I'm going to put a turban on your head and I'm going to cause you to be the celebration of the city. I'm gonna take that which was shameful and I'm gonna lift the veil of shame and I'm gonna put a victor's crown and I'm going to take a name that was connected to humiliation, and I'm going to give you a new name. And if anyone accuses you of anything, you show them the white stone of innocence that the king has declared over your life. Because I am changing you, and I'm giving you a purpose and assignment today. I am making a covenant with you to turn the place of shame, to turn it into a place of victory. And you will be known as the king's favored son. The victorious, triumphant one who's leaning upon their beloved. This is the reward in the inheritance that is found in Jesus. Come on, why don't you guys stand with me?